Amen. We're in a new series. We're leading into it, and it's called Glory in the Church. Glory in the Church. Next week, we will start uh, our track, our 40-week track through the book of Ephesians. We're doing a lead-in in the book of Acts because the church was born in the book of Acts. So we're learning about what the church was from the very beginning and how God originally designed it to function, to exist, to live, and to move. And so we're going to be in the book of Acts again today, but the question that I am asking, the question that I'm throwing out there is, uh, is this, what's wrong with the church? Because when you look at the church and its origin in the church today, uh, you have to wonder, is this the way God intended the church to function? I threw that question out there on Facebook, and if you want to have a lot of fun on social media this week, oh my goodness, you might want to throw that question out there too. What's, I said this on Facebook, what's wrong with the church? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And then I didn't put it out there to answer the question. I didn't put it out there to argue with people. I just wanted to listen. I just wanted to hear what people had to say. Here are some of the comments that I got. I got 40 comments. Here's some of the comments that I got. When its people view the church as a product rather than a household. What's wrong with the church? We've developed a consumer mindset. Someone else said, when the church operates as a business or a foundation instead of a church. One person said, synthesized beliefs with the worldly ways of life and no view of heaven. Somebody wrote, churches are more concerned with defending God and heaven who have no need for human defenders instead of defending the rights and needs of the most vulnerable people. Somebody wrote, uh, willingness to grant one political party undue influence over our values. What's wrong with the church? The church is quick to the hospital when a believer is physically sick, quicker to turn its back on a believer who is spiritually sick. A lot of great responses. Um, Pastor Dave decided to weigh in. What's wrong with the church? And he wrote, not enough heat by the front door. I said, not our church, the church. <laughs> I was asking people this question also. We were driving around. My son and some of his friends were driving around, and I just threw it out there with a bunch of junior high boys. What's wrong with the church? Junior high boys. And um, one of his friends said, I go to religious ed, but I feel like they're teaching me about everything except Jesus and God. Somebody else said, way too much abuse by many in positions of leadership. This is back to my Facebook. Somebody else said, we are waiting for everyone else to go and make disciples. How would you answer that question? What's wrong with the church? I'm not throwing at that question out there to just become a collector, a reservoir of complaints. Uh, I, want, I want to be and I want our church to be a church that listens well that hears people's questions and frustrations with the church. A church has to be able to face the reality that people in the church and people in the world have justifiable questions and concerns and frustrations and wounds from the church. And we can't pretend like that doesn't exist. We have to face the reality that things can go very, very very wrong in the church. 
we have to be able to answer for the fact that things have gone very, very, very badly in the church. And then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with that? Things go wrong when we build on the wrong foundation or when we build the wrong things on the right foundation. That's fundamentally how things go wrong with the church. The Bible is very honest about the sin found in the church from the earliest days. And God wants us to see the opportunity to become the church that he has designed us to be. He wants us to see it, to embrace it. He wants us to be more excited about being a part of the church than almost anything else that's happening in our lives. The church is a wonderful, beautiful, indestructible thing that God has put down here. And yet it's very flawed. And we therefore have to learn to build on the original foundation using the original materials. Today we're going to read about uh, the church in its earliest form. And we're going to see the church at its best. The church operating according to the original manufacturer's specifications. We're going to see how from the earliest time, God built his church with some very basic components. And if we put those together today, we will become the church God intended us to be. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Father, we do want to embrace the opportunity to become the church that you have designed us to be. The individuals who are growing in faith and hope and in love. Show us how we can seize that. Show us how we can press on to become the followers in the community that you have designed us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we have the original Christian community. The church was just born at Pentecost. Last week's sermon was, What is the Church? And go back and listen to that if you missed it. Today we're going to talk about uh, the church in its most original, uh, purest form. And it says this in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is a quick snapshot of the church. It's so early. They hadn't gone out and done any mission trips yet. There were no conventions. Uh, no churches had been planted. It, it was the beginning, the very beginning of the church. And what we see is, if we want to become the church God designed us to be, God didn't start with something and then over the course of thousands of years add everything necessary so that finally it became what he... No, no. He started with everything right there. And as we move forward, we have to go back to the original components. And it's going to be different today, but what's going to, what's going to drive us as a healthy, successful church is do we build these original elements into what we're doing, or do we get away from those things? Jot this down. Let's build a church. Let's build a church that's, and then I'm going to pause there, because we are all responsible to put it together. If you're in a season right now where you're looking for a church, 
and you're kind of church shopping. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? You're like, you feel a little guilty that you're like kicking the tires on a church and you're kind of being choosy and picky. It's weird enough to have to pick a car and you're driving it around with a car salesman and you're like, I don't think I like it. That's weird. But trying to find a church is a little weirder, right? Uh, but you want to find a church that's healthy and mature where you can grow. But look, you're not going to find a perfect church. You won't find one here. And wherever you plug in, you're going to have the opportunity to help build it to become what God intended it to be. We're all building it together. And the New Testament catalogs the churches that built well. If you read through the first several chapters of Revelation, there's commendation. You're doing this well. You're doing this well. And the New Testament also catalogs churches that are putting it together in a wrong way. Stop. You're doing it wrong, right? And we have the opportunity to do it one way or the other. I found this, uh, this interesting YouTube video this week. I'll put it up there. There's a puzzle that is one of the hardest puzzles to assemble in the world. I don't know how they level these jigsaw puzzles, but this is a level 10 jigsaw puzzle to assemble. And the thing is, it only has nine pieces. Now, maybe you think that one of the hardest puzzles to assemble would be one of those. My grandma always used to do puzzles when I was growing up. The pieces were this big, and it had like five billion of them. She was always up there putting them together. You would think that would be one of the hardest puzzles? No. One of the hardest puzzles only has nine pieces. And I watched this poor guy. I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but he worked on it for two hours. And, he, and halfway through, he brought in a friend to help him. I can't figure it out. He finally got it. Two people working for two hours, and he finally figured out how to do it. Listen, this, this puzzle only has nine pieces. And in putting the church together, we're all assembling it. There's not very many pieces found in the New Testament, but getting those things together, you'd be shocked at how many different ways we can get it wrong. Am I right? It's very tough. So we're trying to build a church. We're trying to do it carefully. The first piece we see here, you can jot this down, is being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles uh, were very special folks. They witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were directly commissioned by him to build up the church. Uh, it generally means a sent out one. So the uh, 12 had the office of the apostle, capital A, apostle. There are no more of those in existence, All right? They had the authority to write scripture. They saw visions of the future. They spoke with the direct authority of Christ and the Holy Spirit spoke through them. Now there were other apostles in the New Testament, lowercase a, they didn't have the office. And that just means they were sent out to establish churches, kind of like missionaries today. But what we're talking about here with the teaching of the apostles, we mean the capital A, those who were officially entrusted by Jesus Christ to establish the foundation of the church. It's crucial that you understand that all of them are dead and there are no more of them today. So we must be a church that's devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles set out the thick black boundary lines of orthodoxy. They set the firm foundation on which the church would be built doctrinally, and we are warned, listen, with the most severe warnings humanly possible to our ears not to take one step out of what they have laid down. It's to our own peril if we walk up to the boundary lines of what they set up in terms of orthodoxy and one step is enough, according to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, to cost us eternity. So this is very serious that we adhere to the teachings of the apostles. 
Here's a mountain bike trail that I will never ride, ever. Raise your hand if you would ride that mountain bike trail. <laughs> Some of you are thinking about it. You're kind of daredevils. I'd do it. Uh, I will never ride that trail. I had enough trouble going down. We went halfway down into the Grand Canyon on my feet. And I was like, <laughs> I can't even imagine being on a bike and who knows what could happen. Now look, that's a really good example of what it means to stay within the boundary lines of orthodoxy. How many steps can you take off of that ledge safely? Uh, I mean, maybe if you're Bugs Bunny, a few, right? Cartoon, but in the real world, just one step and you're dead. And listen, we have to be so careful to adhere to the orthodox view of the scripture. One step as a church and we're dead. So we're devoted to the apostles' teachings. The original church hammered out the black and white areas of doctrine, like sin, it's called soteriology, and who God is, right, theology proper, and Jesus, Christology, and the Bible, the Holy Spirit, pneumatology. We have all of this black and white, clear as day teaching on these things. The New Testament also models uh, how the church came to a consensus on gray areas. So it doesn't tell us specifically what to do in, er in certain areas, uh, like food sacrifice to idols or uh, Old Testament regulations and ceremonial cleansings and Sabbath days. A lot of that is what we would call gray areas. And the New Testament gives us a model of how even when we disagree as Christians, we can come to a consensus and not judge each other and not, right? So both in black and white areas and in gray areas, we're given a model for how to handle the teaching by the apostles. And in general, we have to understand that if there is a church or a so-called church today that has glaringly departed from the boundary lines of biblical truth, they are a false apostate church and God's judgment is coming upon them. We rescue people from those churches. We don't look into them and think that God's blessing is upon them. Jot this down. The way that we're devoted to the apostles' teaching is by proclaiming God's word without apology. Proclaiming God's word without apology. Sometimes people will say today, well, who are we to tell other people what to believe? And you're right, we're not. But God is. God is. A better question would be, who is God to tell me what to believe? That's really what people are asking. When they say, who are you to tell me what to think? They're really saying, who is God to tell me what to believe? And if you have this spirit in your heart, God's not going to tell me what to think. You're stuck right there. You're stuck right there until you realize that God handed down through his apostles a body of knowledge and doctrine and teaching, and this is the only way that you can know him. That's called special revelation. If God doesn't disclose himself to you, you can't just think it up. You can't just you know, grab a crayon and a napkin and, and write down truths about God. He has to hand them down to you from heaven. And he did that in his word written by the apostles in the New Testament. So you have to get to a point where you submit yourself under the authority of the scripture. Sometimes people are fine with listening to God, but they don't like the thought of another person or another man telling them what to think, so they reject the apostles. Well, that Paul, he was a chauvinist. Well, that, and they reject the apostles. And let me just say this. We are challenged as a church to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, which means we can't get to the teaching of God unless we submit to the teaching of the apostles. You can't have a problem with Paul and be good with God. It's impossible. So we have to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, and we do that by proclaiming God's word without apology. 
It says in 1 Timothy 3.15 this, If I delay, Paul said, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, listen, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Of truth. We're supposed to be a pillar of truth. We're supposed to get the apostles' teaching uh, front and center underneath everything that we do. Now, when people come to church, sometimes they have a great hunger for God's word, right? The Bible challenges us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Sometimes people come and they just aren't really hungry. They don't really want to learn. Either they're not interested, not hungry, or they don't think, or maybe they think they already have learned everything. And how is your appetite for God's word? Are you getting hungrier by the year? Do you want more of it every year? Here's a picture of me taking my family to 7-Eleven on Slurpee Day. (laughs) On Slurpee Day, they let you bring your own container. And so the kids were running around the house. What do I bring? What do I bring? And they found a glass jar and they found this giant Batman cup and Cassie brought a pitcher and I grabbed a coffee pot and, and in you go. There are, there are pictures online of people who brought in giant buckets or like you, if you can bring it in and fit it under the machine, they will let you fill it up on Slurpee Day. So let me ask you this. When you come to church and God's word is about to be served up, do you just have a little Dixie cup? Oh, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough. You know, do you you have at least a coffee mug? Or a popcorn bucket? Or like a dump truck? Pour it in! Pour it in! How hungry are you to receive God's word? Devoted to the apostles' teaching, proclaiming God's word without apology. We're committed to God's word. One of our pillars is proclaiming God's word without apology. And I'd like to invite you to be committed to God's Word. If you haven't uh, read the book Brother Andrew, it's in our bookstore, Brother Andrew. It's all about how this guy tried to get God's Word into behind the Iron Curtain during the uh, 50s. Read it. It will help you appreciate God's Word because he risked his life to get the Bible behind enemy lines. If you're not a supporter of our missionary family, the Croslands in Papua New Guinea, they're there. They live there to translate the Bible for people who don't have a Bible in their language. We are committed to God's word. And if you find the Croslands on Facebook, boy, become supporters of them. We are supporters of God's word. Hey, let's build a church that, number one, is devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says in Acts chapter 2, Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It goes on to say, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Jot this down. Number two, they gathered publicly for worship. They gathered publicly for worship. The Bible records that the early church gathered in the temple. So the temple was a huge structure, and they would find uh, an open area where they could all get together for some teaching, some instruction, some prayers, some fellowship. Then it said they would also gather in houses, uh, house to house. Some of the churches met in houses. Some of the, so they also broke into smaller groups and met in houses for the word, 
Uh, they, would sing, they would sing hymns. They would recite Old Testament verses. They had some creeds early on. When they would receive a letter from the apostles, they would read that, and they would circulate it around the region. But they would gather publicly for worship. Some of the churches it records met in like a school or a synagogue. If, if they were friendly, they had meetings there. They, they were very creative. They didn't really own buildings. They didn't have building programs, right? They just, they just met where they could. Sometimes they met by the sea uh, or in the marketplace. But they gathered publicly for worship. And it says uh, here that awe fell upon everyone. Many signs and wonders were done. Now again, let's be careful with that because yes, we should expect lives to be transformed. Church is a place where we should expect to encounter God and to see his power unleashed. But it was very special and very rare to be seeing miracles done and, and healings happening on demand and, and to see uh, prophecies predicting the future. This was a very special time in salvation history. So it would be a mistake to think that when you show up to church, you should see things that accompanied the, those who had the office of apostle. Those people don't exist anymore. And so when it comes to how we see God's power, we shouldn't expect to see weekly miracles and signs and wonders and healings here in the church it's important to understand that those things don't happen like they did in the early church. And some people might say, why? Why? Wouldn't it be better to show up to church and there could be a sign or a wonder done? No. The purpose of all of those things was to authenticate the identity and message of the Messiah. All right? So when the Lord Jesus Christ fed the 5,000, wow! Some people found him the next day and they're like, Hey, can we have some more of that magic bread? Can we have more? And Jesus just kind of sighed because they were missing the point. And he actually turned those people away. Because wanting a sign or a wonder or a miracle, instead of seeing that that pointed to a Messiah, to a message, misses the whole point. Jesus wouldn't do tricks on demand. He did those things to say, look, the message that you have been given by the apostles is true. Everything you heard about me, the Messiah, is true. Believe it. We're not supposed to be like supernatural storm chasers. If we are, we miss the point of why those things even happened in the first place. Those things pointed, listen, to a greater reality. Jesus is alive. His word is here. That's the wow. That's what we're chasing. So we're gathering publicly for worship, and we're expecting God to work to meet us in his word and through the praise. Worship is to be orderly, prayerful. There were ordinances from the earliest days here. It shows a very structured gathering. In general, we're called to be a church that worships in spirit and in truth. John 4, in spirit and in truth. In spirit means, means that the love for Christ is flowing through you. And maybe you grew up in a church where, man, the spirit was alive in your church and you could sing and you could express yourself. And, and, and maybe you grew up in a church where it was really more of a truth church and you didn't, you didn't really express yourself much. Maybe you couldn't. You know, and growing up, maybe if you did one of these, you'd get a talking to. You, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't quite move below the shoulders. And what we would say is, if you grew up in more of a spirit church, we would say, well, let's make sure that that's coupled with a love for the truth found in the scripture. And if you grew up in more of a truth church, maybe it's time to learn how to express yourself more in the spirit of worship, right? 
We're not a perfect church, but we try and keep those things in tension. We gather to worship in spirit and in truth. Jot this down. Unashamed adoration is one of our pillars. Unashamed adoration. You can drift in so many different directions off the map in your worship. And make no mistake about it, sometimes people feel like we're not really supposed to judge how worship happens. Uh, Go all the way back to Genesis. And when Cain and Abel showed up with their offerings, which, by the way, they had to put in the hands of God. Imagine how offerings would change if you had to write your check out and actually hand it to God. Here you go, God. And listen, it says the Lord would not look on Cain's offering. Imagine that. Imagine you show up and you're like, and God just doesn't even look. Listen, friends, if our worship is not acceptable to him, he doesn't even look at it. And sometimes if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, if our worship gets divisive or off, or off the truth and off, it can actually become harmful. God can judge a church because of the way they're worshiping him. So don't feel like worship is kind of a blank check. Well, however you feel like expressing yourself to God. In general, when it comes to what we find in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, worship has to be conscious. So you can't be out of your mind. You have to be conscious. You have to be controlled, right? And you have to be coherent. Those are the three tests. And if your worship is not conscious or controlled or coherent in what is being said, it falls out of line of a biblical form of worship. In addition, it also has to be heartfelt, right? The Bible says their teachings are about rules taught by men. Their hearts are far from me. So your heart has to be in it. So we gather publicly for worship with unashamed adoration. And look, if you go to work tomorrow and you show up and you're like, guess what was my favorite part of the weekend? They're like, what? And you're like, church. How many of you would get a look if you showed up to work tomorrow and you said to your coworkers, guess what was my favorite part of the weekend? What? Church. Raise your hand if you would kind of get a look. If you're kind of nervous about what would happen if you said that. Some of you are going like this. It's all right. Some of the former Pentecostals are going like this, right? (laughs) It's because if you're excited about church, there's something wrong with you. Like, get out of the Stone Age. You believe these things still? You think Jesus is alive? You're a cartoon. You're a comedy to the world today. So I had an Apple Watch that I bought a few years ago helpful for running. I like to run half marathons and marathons. And when we were at one of our retreats, the the top of the Apple Watch broke and popped up. So I used scotch tape to tape it down. I thought I could get another year out of it. And then it fell face down on the ground when we got home and broke into three pieces. So now it's gone. So I got to go out and shop for another watch. Now check this out. What if I showed up next week and I was wearing this? It's a grandfather clock wristwatch. Dong, dong. How many of you, your grandparents had like grandfather clocks or you had grandfather clocks? Bro? Can, can you imagine if I started showing off? Hey, guess what I got? People would be like, have you heard of Apple? Like, have you, do you know what the digital age is? Like if I was walking around with that, I'd get looks. And if you're walking around telling people that you worship Jesus, oh my goodness. Get with the times. 
But we are unashamed in our adoration. Unashamed in our adoration. Also jot this down. Unceasing prayer was a part of the gathered worship. It says here that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. It also says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the prayers. To the prayers. And one of our pillars is unceasing prayer. Hey, check in your bulletins. We put a prayer guide in there. I'd love for you to pull that out right now. This is our spring, winter, spring prayer guide. And we're going to have 40 days of prayer, 30, 31 days of prayer as a church. And I'd love to invite you to pray through this prayer guide for your church. And what you can do is, this is just a guide if you started, you know, this week. But really, there's just 31 days. You can pray them in order, out of order. You just, just devote these to pray. You might need to do a couple in a day if you want to catch up. But I'd love for our whole church to be a praying church. And so just have this out on your desk or tape it to your mirror in your bathroom or whatever. And then just cross it off as you get through the list. And I'd love for you to, when you get done with this, when you cross it all off, to just bring it back in and then to throw it into the offering bag so that we know, look, I did it. I prayed. You don't have to put your name on it, you know, but boom, I did it. I'd love for you to bring that back and then we can highlight those that we received. But we want to be a praying church because from the very beginning, the church was a praying church. Number one, devoted to the apostles' teachings. Number two, gathered for publicly for worship. Number three, jot this down, unafraid witness. Unafraid witness. It says here in verse 47... Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were telling others the good news about Jesus Christ and people were being saved. This tells us the human condition. The people out there who do not know Jesus don't need to be taught. Primarily don't need to be taught. Don't need to be helped or coached. Don't need to be counseled. They fundamentally need to be saved. Saved. That's their primary need, is to be saved from sin and hell and death forever. Somehow my family got into this show, Bondi Rescue. Anybody else watch Bondi Rescue? Uh, Here's a picture that just shows you the the title sequence. But it's a lifeguard show from the eastern coast of Australia. And these these Australian lifeguards make... They have like 40,000 people on the beach at a time, you know, sometimes, on their peak days. Like this huge beach. And they have to watch the whole thing. And they'll go out there and, and they'll rescue people every day. And here's another picture of them bringing a child back in who was having some trouble swimming. And they just go out there, they rescue him, they bring him back in. And the rescues are riveting. They've got cameras on the board. Some of these people are under the water. They pull them up by their hair and throw them on the board, bring them back. They've got to resuscitate some people. I mean, it's like gripping. And that, they do all of that um, to save a body, to get a body going again. Breath in the lungs, blood in the heart. We do that with souls. Look, when we find people who don't know Christ, they're at the bottom of the ocean. They're not just sick, they're dead. And we, we bring them back up and tell them the truth, and Jesus brings them to life. It's a miracle. That's what we do. And if you have never believed the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, that he died on the cross to take away all of your sin, 
that he was thrown in the tomb and on the third day he rose again and now he rules heaven. If you have never believed that before, you are face down spiritually on the bottom of the sea. And you need Jesus to pick you up and put you on dry land. You need Jesus to save you. And he will. You can deny your need for a savior, but it's really foolish based on where God says you are. Unafraid witness, we tell the world the truth of their need for a savior. Jot this down. Our mission statement as a church is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. Fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We go and we make disciples. We tell them the truth of their need to be saved. And then we baptize them. Have you been baptized to show that you are a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? We're unafraid in our witness. It's a rescue mission. We have many ways that we get out into the community I hope you come tonight to the all-church rally because we're going to present our annual report with all sorts of amazing facts from last year. But one of my favorite pages is always the missions page. And to give you a sneak peek, we listed that um, one strategic partner that we have, the National School Project, gets the gospel into local high schools through high school students. They coached 104 schools last year, did 150 evangelistic outings in public high schools, They held 213 rallies and over 16,000 kids came and heard the gospel in California, in Illinois, in New York, in all these states. And we're we're supporters of that organization and I'm on the board of that organization. They've done amazing things in Chicago, even in schools in our area, like Oakland High School and Richards High School and Shepherd. It's amazing what they're doing. And we get to be a part of getting the truth out, unafraid witness. I've gone to several of these rallies during lunchtime, Richards High School, and people just get to ask me any question. You know, there's a bunch of Muslim students in one corner. There's a Jewish student who had some questions, and they just get to ask anything. It's remarkable. And the high school students have to set it up. That's courage. We can't go in there and do it for them. They've got to do it. Robbie Zacharias Ministries is another one that we partner with. They're an apologetics organization. For 35 years across 43 countries, they've met millions of questioners with thoughtful answers concerning faith, God, and life's biggest questions. They now have over 90 speakers. So it started with Robbie dazzling us all, and now he's raised up 90 speakers, and they're all around the world right now. Universities, government, uh, meetings, in the business world. They're reaching into places that we can't go unafraid witness. We plant churches and GCC, the Great Commission Collective, is our church planting organization. And there's 56 churches in the U.S., 19 in Canada, 50 international churches. It's amazing to see churches planted because that's how the gospel goes forward. I hope you realize that the church from the earliest days had unafraid witness as one of their key components. And that puzzle piece has to be built into what we're doing. Unafraid witness evangelism. I hope you desire to grow in your ability to have great spiritual conversations with people. Now, of course, I say the same thing you do. I can't do what Robbie Zacharias does. I can't be a part of a you know, high school organization where every day they're getting it. I can't do that, right? But I can try to have great spiritual conversations in the world wherever I go. Uh, often, I, I love to share my faith with, uh, with Lyft drivers who are taking me home from the airport or Uber drivers, or whatever. Like, wherever we are, you can strike up a conversation. Somebody that's checking you in, you know, to the hotel. I love to strike up conversations. And 
If you want to improve your ability to have spiritual conversations, here's the first thing I'd recommend you do. Start with a question. See, sometimes we think we just need to tell people the truth. No, no, don't tell. Ask. What do you believe about that? I've had great conversations with people and I've said, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I hope you seek to have great spiritual conversations so that you can witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ without fear. Number one, devoted to the apostles' teaching. Number two, gathering publicly for worship, including adoration and prayer. Number three, unafraid witness, glorifying God by fulfilling the Great Commission. And number four, becoming a loving community. Becoming a loving community. Up until this point, you know, some churches can be like, check truth, check worship, check evangelism. And then you get to loving community and they're like, uh-oh, uh-oh. It's harder to track these things. We don't have in the annual report a percentage of how much more joyful we became last year. It's hard to track. We don't have some sort of a pie graph about how much more forgiving we've become as a church. You can't quite measure that. All right, It's hard to put out a poll to say, hey, how much more peaceful do you feel in your life? It's hard. Do you see what I'm saying? But it's actually pretty easy to, um, to figure out if a church is a loving church. And when I say love, what I mean is you are doing the loving things in community, but you're also holding people accountable in a loving manner to the truth. Right? That's what I mean by a loving community. Are we becoming a loving community? It says here they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So they didn't just have their own little private devotion time back then. They didn't even have the New Testament yet. There was no Bible app. They got together. They broke bread. That's a reference to communion and the prayers. Awe came upon every soul. Wonders and signs were being done. But listen, it says all who believed were together and had all things in common. I don't even know what that would look like in the church today. What does that even mean to be able to look around at people in this room and say, we've got all things in common? Isn't that actually kind of a bit scary? And doesn't even sound kind of a bit creepy? Like if, if you went to work tomorrow and you were like, best part of my weekend was church. What? Yep, we've got all things in common. What? Are you a part of a cult? It, it's, it's a radical thought, and I don't even know what it means today. All who believed were together and had all things in common. What if I set that for a 2020 goal? Elders, by the end of the year, I'd like our church to have all things in common. What? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's quite a benevolence rhythm there. It was a very down year for us when it comes to benevolence. Part of the problem is we're finishing up a building program. That's one of the things I want our deacons to give attention to this year. What does it mean to have a champion year of benevolence? People are selling that, like, like have you ever done that? I've never done that, where I've seen a need and gone and sold something to meet the need of a fellow Christian. Like, I haven't done that. 
Have you done that? They were radical in their generosity. It's amazing. Day by day, attending the temple. Do you want to see everybody in this room every day? See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. They did it. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Be honest. There's a very short list of people you'd want to see every day, right? You again! You again! You again! (laughs) This is getting old. They did it! Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Look, when I look back to the early church, they didn't have projectors, soundboards, bank accounts, none of it, offering plates, they had nothing. And I look back at what they were doing, and I'm like, I really envy them. They were doing radical things. Things that we're not doing as well as they were doing. We have to become a loving community. That involves giving sacrificially. That involves gladly rejoicing, being a friendly church. Many of you, many of us have been a part of a church where they got into it. And let me tell you, churches can fight. Am I right? Cats can fight. Churches can fight better than cats. Here's a picture of a, of a fight, which is pretty funny. It's a food fight. But uh, many, many of you have been in churches where this is what it feels like to go to church. <laughs> right? This is what it feels like to go to a leader meeting. This is where somebody marches up to the front and starts... Churches can fight. We've got to become a loving community. We have to do the hard work of building relationships over time. That involves resolving conflict, handling disagreements, understanding differences... It's not easy. Jot this down. Our mission, I shared the first half and the last point, to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. Jot this down. In the spirit of the Great Commandment. In the spirit of the Great Commandment. It's not enough to just go and be a truth church, bringing the truth to the ends of the earth. We have to be a church filled with the love of Jesus Christ. We have to let everything be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I get through this list of four puzzle pieces... And honestly, it's daunting to figure out how to put these things together as well as the early church did it. We have our work cut out for us. And as we lead into a series on the church, I just want you to know my heart is not at all, not 1%. Like, I'm going to spend the next 40 weeks telling you about how great of a church we are. Uh, No, we've got some work to do on the truth side, on the grace side. I'm inviting you to become a part of growing this church to become like the church at its best in the Bible, to help me put these pieces together in a way so that we will be, here it is, a church filled with God's glory. Let's pray. Father, our heart's desire is that you would be glorified in the church. Jesus, our prayer is that your name would be exalted. Your name alone would be exalted in the church. We pray that you would bless the next 40 weeks as we study the book of Ephesians. Show us how to become the church that gives you glory. Show us how to become the church that gives you praise. Help us to grow in our ability to stand firmly on the apostles' teaching. Help us to grow in our ability to worship you with all of our hearts every week, no matter how we feel. 
Help us to grow, Lord, in our ability to go and make disciples and to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. And above all, the Bible says, put on love. Above all, to put on love. And I'm just reminded how the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation was commended for so much. But it's this church that was told, you have forgotten your first love. And as we enter into the book of Ephesians, help us to remember that it's all about loving you and loving people. Transform us. I think of those today, Father, who came here and they felt convicted because they don't know you, they don't love you, they don't love your word. They've never repented of their sin. They've never put their faith in Jesus. I give them a chance right now to become a part of the church. I give them a chance right now to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I invite you to pray this in your own heart, to say this, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I'm dead, face down at the bottom of the sea. And I need you to pull me up to life. Jesus, save me. Say that in your heart, Jesus, save me. Help me to worship you, to walk with you, to serve you. Help me to become a loving part of the family of God. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.